This morning's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Elizabeth. My name is John Forsyth, the vicar at St Jude, and a very warm welcome to you. Uh, to those who are here in person, it's fantastic to preach to faces rather than empty chairs. Uh, hopefully, uh, I get more feedback from you than I would from an empty chair. Uh, and also, uh, delighted for those uh, to, for, uh, to, to kind of virtually see those who are joining us online as we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, as uh, a vicar of a church, uh, when people discover that, uh, firstly, they're, they're a little shocked that I'm not 86 years old. And secondly, they're quite open and happy to talk about the idea of God, the concept of God. They're happy to share with me their, their kind of thought experiment, what they think God is like. 
And for most people I've engaged with, particularly from a Western worldview, God in their mind is kind of a benign spirituality. Someone who's safe and doesn't make too many demands, but also helps out when needed. A kind of rich uncle who with a generous disposition. But what we see when we get to Isaiah 6 is that the God of Scripture is not a God we have an encounter with on our own terms, but rather a God we have an encounter with on his terms. And we'll see that to have a genuine encounter with God in the language of our day is not a safe space. Not a safe space. Indeed, it's one of the most life-changing and indeed life-shaking moments. Well, let's have a look at this text together. We start with a bit of an introduction from, uh, uh, from Isaiah, giving us some historical context. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he's setting us uh, in the timeline of God's people. Now, King Uzziah was king for quite a long time, actually, uh, around 52 years. And he started off as quite a good king, even though God's people were slowly declining. Uh, you can read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And he sought God and God made him prosper as a king. But the problem with Isaiah was that as he grew strong, he grew proud. And we read in Chronicles that God humbled him with leprosy and he spent the end of his reign in strict quarantine. Something we can relate to perhaps. Not the first part, but perhaps the second part. And so the long tragic decline of the nation of Israel is echoed in the long gradual decline of its king, Uzziah. And it would seem at this point that human hope has been dashed. What is the future for God's people as they slowly fall away from trusting in God and as their king finally breathed his last breath? Well, it's at that moment that Isaiah comes face to face with God. He has an encounter with God. And as he does so, we see four things highlighted for us. Firstly, Isaiah is shaken by the glory of God. He is shaken by the glory of God. Secondly, he humbly recognises his own sinfulness. He humbly recognises his own sinfulness. Thirdly, unexpectedly and radically, he receives grace. Unexpectedly and radically, he receives grace. And fourthly, he is ready to serve. He's ready to serve. Well, let's look at those uh, uh, step by step. Firstly, Israel is shaken by the glory of God. And we see this most evidently in the first four verses of chapter 6. You read here that Israel has an encounter with God, a vision with God in the temple. And, and Isaiah describes the experience, but notice that as he does so, he doesn't actually detail what God looks like. Instead, Isaiah describes the totally overwhelming nature and character of God. 
Firstly, God's terrifying kingship. I saw the Lord high and exalted, this is in verse 1, seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Occupation for the temple. One, In other words, God is so huge in his kingly rule, he fills the temple. And the end of verse 5 declares Isaiah, my eyes have seen the king. Not just a king, but the king, the Lord Almighty. And he uses the word Yahweh, God's personal name for himself. Secondly, Isaiah sees God's terrifying powerful, uh, power at work. Notice that he says, the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty. That little phrase, Almighty, literally means of hosts, which is nothing to do with hosting a dinner party, uh, as lovely as that would be. It, of hosts means to be the commander of a huge and powerful army, organized and ready for war, for action. That is the power, the tremendous power that Isaiah sees the Lord has. Thirdly, he sees God's terrifying holiness. Now, the idea holy, what it means at its essence is something that is incomparably brilliant and beautiful, utterly unlike anything else, so separate and distinct from anything else that it, that it blows your mind. And we read that above him, that is above the Lord, there are seraphim, strange heavenly winged creatures, each with six wings, with two wings they cover their faces, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they're flying, and they're calling out to one another again and again and again, not just holy, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you don't use the word very or great or a lot. You simply repeat something. So God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy. And God isn't just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Now, when I was younger, as a little kid, we went to the beach uh, and I got a, a grain of sand, I've no idea how I did this, actually embedded in my eyeball. Like stuck, stuck in. Everyone's getting squeamish at this point. It's okay, it has a happy ending. And I had to wear an eye patch after the little surgery I had to protect the eye from damage after they, they had removed it. I won't go into the details of how they removed it. But after a couple of days of wearing the eye patch, I was allowed to take it off. And of course, being summer... The world was so bright after having two days of darkness, I actually couldn't open my eye and I had to shield my face from the harsh Australian sun. And that's what we see in this passage. God's holiness is so overwhelming that the seraphim have to cover their, their feet and their faces. God's glory is too much. Even as they sing of it again, holy, 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 it is too much. Fourthly, God is terrifyingly glorious. The word glory at its root means 
weightiness or heaviness. It's about permanence, things that are real and important and eternal, stable and secure. In contrast to something that is glorious, everything else seems light and flimsy and fleeting. When I was uh, a younger man, I used to play American football. And you can, you can tell by looking at me why I chose that sport. Uh, and in one of the drills we had for my team, it was a tackling drill. And the gentleman lined up against me was a 140 kilo, six foot four man. And I was 18 and weighed, let's just say, a little under 70 kilos. The gentleman in front of me was more than twice my weight. He was, in one sense, more glorious than I was. And as the inevitable happened, as he slightly smiled and started running towards me, he literally bumped me over as if I didn't exist. Because when something glorious, something heavy and permanent comes in contact with something lighter, guess what happens? Glory always wins. It shakes and determines and knocks everything out out the way. We speak of cyclones and storms and the kind of feeling they bring as a freight train. They shake things. And that's what we have here in this picture. Look at verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook the temple. The temple's not a flimsy building, it's a big building. But it shakes and it's filled with smoke, a symbol of God's powerful presence. The picture that Isaiah is painting for us is that God's glory is a full body experience. It is sight, it is sound, it is smell, it is touch, it is shaking. God's glory is overwhelming in each and every sense. When God comes in glory, the earth shakes. Exodus 19. The mountain shakes at the glory of God. Psalm 29 verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns. Let nations tremble. He sits between the cherubim. Let the earth Shake. See, friends, we are happy often with the concept of God. But the reality of God is something entirely different. See, friends, the challenge here is that we don't just have a concept of God, but we engage with the reality of God's glory that is revealed to us in his word. See, when it comes to a concept, a concept is something that we shape. We are heavier, as it were, than the concept. We arrange it. It is safe. It's our agenda. It's our words. It's our ideas. But to have a, an encounter with the glory of God is to be shaped by his glory. It means God arranges us. God shakes us. God is heavier than us. It is his agenda. It is his 
word. And so to have a genuine encounter with God means that you are shaken by his glory. You are shaken by his glory. Which kind of leads to the next question. Well, how do you know if you've then had an encounter and shaken by God's glory? Well, we we see in the passage then, secondly, you recognize your own sinfulness and humility. That's how you know you've come to face the glory of God. You are deeply aware of your brokenness and confess. Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined. That's the first words from his mouth when he comes into the presence of God's glory. Not, wow, this is awesome. I've been waiting a long time to have an experience with God and it's everything I've wanted and more. It's not taking selfies with God and saying, check out who I'm hanging out with. It is, woe, I am ruined. Literally, I am dead. Woe, of course, it, woe is, is the language of judgment. On the lips of a prophet, it's a curse to the nations, which he's already done. In the previous chapter, in chapter 5, six times he's already said woe. He said, woe to the greedy, woe to the drunk and lazy, woe to the mockers, woe to the perverted, woe to the self-conceited, woe to the lawless. And now he says, but woe to me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty that's the response to have an encounter with god it is woe and isaiah speaks of his lips being unclean well the words of one's mouth reflect their inner person and jesus himself says in matthew 15 The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile a person. In the presence of the holiness and terrifying gloriness of God, Isaiah recognises the sinfulness of his own heart and he confesses that his sin has made him unworthy in his job as a prophet. What is a prophet's job? It is to speak words with his lips. But he's unworthy to do so. And it's also impossible for his lips to to even join in the seraphim and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. His lips are so unclean. He dare not even say those words. And it's not just him, the entire nation of Israel. Their lips and their hearts are unclean. See, friends, if you have a genuine encounter with God, you are shaken to your core and humbly confess your sins. Your response is woe. In Luke chapter 5, Peter, who is a very keen follower of Jesus, sometimes over keen, he gets a glimpse, just a glimpse of Jesus' power and glory. And this is what he says. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, Peter realized 
exactly what Isaiah realised, that when you encounter the reality of God in his glory and holiness, there is no place to stand. You can only fall down in repentance and confess, woe is me, I am ruined. God's glory shakes. We respond with humble repentance. But thirdly, Isaiah radically receives grace. This is verses 6 and 7. Now, there's no doubt in Isaiah's mind at this point what's about to come. And as far as he's concerned, death is approaching quickly and swiftly. And what happens next actually seems to confirm his grave fears in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. A terrifying winged angel of the Lord grabs a burning hot coal from, from God's altar and flies towards you. Friends, that is not good news. That is terrifying. And particularly when fire, when you understand that fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's judgment. God's righteous anger and wrath. It it consumes evil. That's what God's fire does. And it's so dangerous, the seraphim actually has to wear tongs. It's OHNS rule. But something radical happens in verse 7. Isaiah doesn't die. With it, he touched my lips and said, See, this has touched your lips. It's a nice repetition in case you can imagine um, Isaiah probably has his eyes closed at this point in absolute fear. Look, it's okay, it's just touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah's guilt and sin are atoned for. His lips are, clean, are cleansed to do God's work. Not consumed, but cleansed. See, Isaiah receives grace. Isaiah receives grace. It's clear in Isaiah's mind what he deserves. It's clear in the presence of God's glory what Isaiah deserves. But yet he receives grace. His sins atoned for. It's a little gospel presentation here in Isaiah 6, isn't it? We come to God shaken by his glory and his holiness. We humbly confess our sins. And we receive grace. Instead of judgment, we receive grace. Our sins are atoned for. Our guilt is taken away. It's important to remember just how shocking that reality is. Isaiah is not expecting this. When he sees that coal coming towards, it's like, oh, finally. These lips have been annoying me for a while. I'm looking forward to them being cleansed. Woe is me. That is where his heart is. But yet unexpectedly receives grace. And fourthly, we see that as Isaiah has this encounter with the glory of God, he's then transformed to be ready to serve. Verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
who will go for us. And what I love about Isaiah's response is he doesn't wait for the job description. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm here, send me. Now, if you've ever worked with little kids uh, or taught in a primary school, uh, you know this response. I used to teach scripture in primary schools, and particularly with little kids, you'd say, no, I have a question. And the entire class would put their hands in the air, keen to answer the question. Or if you've got a job, all the kids' hands go in the air. They are so keen to serve, they don't even care what the job is. And that's Isaiah, transformed to serve God, not waiting to find out what the job is. See, Isaiah has come into the presence of God. He's been shaken by the glory of God, but he's been so transformed by the glory of God. He cannot help but serve. See, friends, I wonder if our reluctance to serve is not because we're too busy, but because we haven't got a glimpse of God's glory. Now, the distance between the earth and the sun is about 152 million kilometres, and I'm sure someone's going to email me during the week saying, no, John, it's 153 million kilometres. Let's just be approximate. Now, I want you to imagine, use your imagination. And if you don't have an imagination, just pretend. Uh, imagine that you can reduce the solar system so that the earth and the sun are now one a sheet of paper apart, the skinniness of a sheet of paper apart. That is 0.01 of a millimetre. You're doing that, you're thinking that way. The nearest star then is 21 metres away. And the edge of the galaxy, of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 500 kilometres away. And there are billions upon billions of galaxies. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus holds this universe together by the power of his word in the palm of his hand. Friends, is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? To be available for you, to fit into your timetable. See, friends, if you want to be radically available to serve God, you have to get a glimpse of his glory. It is about shaping your life around God, not trying to squeeze God into your life. It's about being shaken by his glory, humbled by your sin, forgiven by his grace, and willing to serve him for his glory. And so Isaiah is sent on a mission, but it's seemingly mission impossible. Have a look at verse 9 with me. This is what God says to Isaiah. Go and tell this people, be hearing, but never understanding. Be seeing, but never perceiving. Make the parts of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. 
Otherwise, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, to be fair, it's not the most inspirational message. There are not many uh, uh, posters, Christian posters that I've seen with this verse on them. Not many churches have this as their mission statement. But friends, these verses are really important, even though they are really challenging. And they are quoted numerous times in the New Testament, often on the lips of Jesus himself. See, here's the problem that Isaiah faces. God's people can only be brought to repentance by telling them the truth again and again. But, but the challenge is, as they reject the truth the first time, the second time, and the third time, their hearts actually become increasingly resistant to the message, increasingly resistant to God's grace. And what Isaiah is being taught, and what we are being taught in these verses is that the problem with humanity is not with our ears. The ultimate problem is the human heart. Our hearts are so stubbornly sinful that even when they're rebuked, they don't change, they actually get harder. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so our old heart becomes increasingly more hardened and more stubborn and more religious and more self-righteous. Which leads to the second truth, that only God can change our hearts. Only God can give us a new heart So when we face the terrifying reality of God's glory and the terrifying reality of our sin, in God's mercy, he cleanses us by his grace. In other words, Isaiah is is being told and we're being told there needs to be a God-centred solution to the problem of human sin. Human beings alone cannot atone for their sin. They cannot even turn away from their sin. They just get hardened. God needs to miraculously intervene just as he did with Isaiah. And so in verse 11, Isaiah asked, look, how long? How how long is this going to take? How how much preaching will need to happen before you act, God? Before, Before whatever needs to happen, happens. And God's answer is seemingly bleak. The people's blindness will continue until the land is destroyed, it is ruined and it is ravaged and its people taken away in exile. Until they bear the judgment for their sin. But when all seems to have been lost, there is this beautiful sign of hope right at the very end. Did you notice that in verse 13? The very last half of verse 13. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a a picture from chopping trees down, where you chop certain trees down, often a little bit of green from the stump will grow. 
And somehow this seed, this holy seed, will be the stump in the lamb. Now, we've seen God's holiness already, so there's obviously a connection between God at work in this seed. Well, the good news is, in a few chapters' time, we get a really big clue. And I'm not giving anything away because we're going through chunks of Isaiah here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We get a really big clue. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Isaiah 11, verse 1. And in light of this astonishing promise, God is pointing to this promised seed of David. Jesse is David's, is David's father, who will somehow be a, a messianic king, a promised king, who will bring deliverance for his people. And this will be fulfilled ultimately at a later time when the temple is once again shaken, shaken, I should say, is shaken once more. And another man cries out in woe, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet it is in this man, the Lord Jesus, that the Messiah faced the full wrath of God. Even though his lips were not unclean, yet even though he was without sin, but in doing so, it means that our guilt is taken away and our sins have been atoned for. And here's a really radical result of that. Our encounter with God then becomes radically different. It means you and I can approach the glorious and terrifying throne of God not in fear of our lives, not with words of woe, but with confidence and with joy. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What an extraordinary outcome. Not woe, but confidence in the mercy of God. Friends, in a moment we are going to join those seraphim in singing holy, holy, holy. Before I do, let me pray that we'll give thanks to this God for his mercy and grace which enables us to approach his throne with confidence. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this extraordinary picture of your power and glory and holiness and might. Father, like Isaiah, may you shake our world. May you help us humbly confess our sin. May we receive that unexpected and glorious grace that you promise us in the Lord Jesus. And may you equip our hearts 
to be keen to serve, to say, send me, Lord. And Father, may we do all these things with the extraordinary confidence that you give us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.